From the journeys of belonging to blackness, blackness. I'm India Lorik Wilmot. Nobody else can do this job. You're listening to the podcast, Talking Journeys of Belonging to Blackness. Blackness. Joining us today is Tanya Hegeman. Tanya is assistant professor and English department chair at City University of New York's Medgar Evers College in Brooklyn, New York. A writer, educator, advocate, a bisexual and disabled Black Indigenous woman of color, Tanya's publications and community activism are informed by the intersectionality of these identities. She has taught extensively at community organizations such as Griot Circle, a senior center for LGBTQIA people of color, Women Against Rape, Police Athletic League, and Planned Parenthood. Currently, Tanya focuses her public speaking and event facilitation on educating type 1 diabetics about self-advocacy, acquiring accommodations at work and school, and the benefits of working with a diabetic alert dog. Tanya also lectures on disparities in the medical industrial complex, generational disabilities, and the Black body and medical technology, as well as mental health. As a writer of historical fiction for young people, her publications focus on historic cultural perspectives, equity and inclusion, disability, LGBTQIA+, and intersectional womanist perspectives. In fact, Tanya's books, Willow, Most Loved in All the World, M Plus O Forever, and Pemba's Song, short stories and poetry have won awards, starred reviews, and recognition from the New York Public Library, the Ezra Jack Keats Award Committee, the Christopher Award Foundation, Publishers Weekly, the Washington Post, USA Today, Ebony Magazine, and Essence Magazine, and are included in the Amelia Bloomer Project's recommended feminist readings list. Tanya continues to create content, including a new memoir that explores her experiences with an invisible chronic illness and how it intersects with her gender, race, and creativity, all while navigating public and private spaces with her diabetic alert dog, Bobo. Can't wait to learn about this project too. Welcome, Tanya. Hi, thank you. I'm so excited to have you on this podcast. I've been following you and your work for some time now and been intrigued by your writer activism and the ways you amplify the voices and experiences of marginalized people. I'm eager to learn more, as I'm sure my listeners are as well. Are you ready to get into it? I am. I'm excited. Thank you. Right about now. Act one, call to adventure. This is a breakdown. So Tanya, as a creative, there are paths we take and processes we engage in to get us to where we are today. How did you become interested in doing the work you do today? I just turned 45 this year. You know, looking back, I realized that I've had the privilege of being educated as a creative since I was a young child. So since like fourth grade, even before that, I wrote my first book when I think I was six. The creative life in my DNA, it is who I am. I never would have suspected how deeply my disability has changed my creative practice. It has forced me to 
to elevate my creative practice and own it in a very different way. In what ways? The idea of being a deliberate creator versus a creative person. Like we all have this idea of like the magical muse that just sort of pushes our hand around for us. But as I've matured and been through life, I've realized how important it is to cultivate a deliberate practice around creativity and therefore as an extension, my life. How is this process an extension of your life? Because my life has been about creativity since I was a child. What you're saying in terms of the deliberateness, being a creative and truly embodying that identity in all aspects of your life and even for yourself to recognize that so early on. And then I see that particularly in your literature and your writings. You know, one of the things that I noticed, there's a particular character thread in your in your books where either the protagonist used as an allegory, there's a character, oftentimes an African descended enslaved girl that's in the book. Yeah. And I'm thinking, okay, this is very purposeful as well mm. as part of mm-hmm. your creativity. So mm-hmm. if you think back to your childhood and growing up, who or what motivated you to tell these types of stories and why is it so significant to have this particular character thread or allegory in your work? First, I should actually start by saying, you know, I, I was brought up right outside of Philadelphia, right on the Mason-Dixon line. Understanding that sort of in history and geography of the boundaries gave me a, a perspective. And our family lore is about being descendants of slaves and particularly having uh, familial relationships with slave owners and the pursuit of freedom from those circumstances. I'm a descendant of slaves. I'm a descendant of the true Americans, people who were here on this continent before others. And what are those stories? Before I knew that other people were claiming descendants from Thomas Jefferson, I had heard plenty of stories from my own grandmother about her grandmother and how they lived adjacent to Monticello. Then on my other side of the family, they claimed descended from Thomas Jefferson from another one of his slaves. And my grandfather, his grandfather was the last official chief of the Nanticoke Indians in Delaware, last one buried on the sacred ground. Being seeped in the true American story, right? The struggle of being a person of color, being an African descendant, being owned and beholden, that has echoed. And so those stories always fascinated me because I was very clearly aware of how that was different from some other people. In what ways, since the U.S. history is very much rooted in the enslavement of other people. I grew up in a very white area and my mother was very intent on having us know our history, knowing that we were black because I would be questioned all the time, you know, are you, what are you? By white people and black people, like, you know, brown people, whoever. And my mother always made sure that we understood our blackness was primary. You know, she she bought us all of the history of Africans in America, encyclopedias, you know, all that stuff. And it sparked my imagination very early on. Being someone who's used writing and the word and the story to interpret one's life. And what does this mean for your character and how she shows up in your stories themselves? She's always there, you know, because I'm always wondering, what's that girl doing? What's she, how's she going to get out of there? <laughs> would I get out of there? Would I be able to get out of that situation? How would I face that? And the deeper I went into it, my book Willow, which came out in 2014, that really explored familiar relationships 
in the plantation setting because it was so fascinating to me to really imagine the lives of people. And in what ways are you imagining these lives? Because there are, there's plenty of documented history of, of people who stayed on plantations, who saw it as their work and their home and their lives. And it wasn't in that kind of Uncle Tomming kind of way, but in uh, this is where I am. This is where, this is where my family is. I'm not trying to break up my family or my situation. And I take pride in the place in which I've helped to build. That is an incredible conflict to have. On the one hand, to be tethered to the land that has oppressed you and your family. And then the other, to be able to say that there's a certain portion of ownership, that you are part of that land, that you've bled for that land. You know, there's confusion for us. And how does that manifest? You know, it confuses me in how I manifest, you know, my thoughts around that. But all of us who consider ourselves Americans, who are also African descendants, that is literally our struggle. We could easily go back to Africa if we really wanted to, but we maintain this loyalty. We maintain a stubborn vigilance to ownership of this place that we know that we have built. Our presence of mind and present context helps to inform our interpretations of these materials in yeah. ways that perhaps could be erroneous or it only gives a snapshot of perhaps what this ancestor or this individual was going through. But I think that's the beauty of your space when you're writing historical fiction. You have some play in terms of the story making. Where you can extrapolate, extrapolate facts and turn them into a story. It's a beautiful thing. I really do check the extrapolate, intrapolate, you know, that you were just saying. A book I read and actually an author who in my adulthood really influenced my writing was Virginia Hamilton. I remember reading The House of Dyes Drear, the Underground Railroad stories, the hidden places, the treasures, right, that are found in our histories. And reading it as a child and not necessarily connecting with it and then reading it as an adult and being like, oh, this is like everything that I've always... <laughs> you know, thought about or, you know, had connected with me so many ways. And it's true. You were saying about these stories and it's funny because I was recently with family and we were talking about somebody found an, a picture of the old folks and actually the, the Delaney sisters were also related to them. My grandfather did go and meet them. I think it was post time the book happened and he was like, they were like, oh, you're our little cousin. And he was like in his 80s, you know, so we were looking at these pictures of this family in which their relatives were a part and one individual stood out. And I, you know, I asked my great aunt, who is that? And she said, oh, well, that's so-and-so. His father wasn't everybody else's father. And I was like, oh, what? This woman had like 18 children. And then a conversation ensued between the women in the family. You know, we were cleaning up and, you know, as we do, and it was her daughter. She said she was raped and she was raped by a white man on their land. And my great aunt said, no, you don't know that. What was it about the family folklore that your great aunt was like, no, this does not comport with what I understand the truth to be? She was basically inciting a story that her great grandmother had had an affair with a white man and had a child. But, you know, her daughter was like, I don't really think at that time period for her to have all of these children by one man. And then this one child comes out who is lighter skinned, sharper nose 
nose, taller than everybody else with a distance in his eye. You know, that look of I am one of you, but I am not you. The conversation around how the the genesis of this man who never married and never had children and was always in family pictures. He was always a part of the family, but was clearly a part. So the story of the voluntary relationship versus the forced, our stories, they change with generations and with interpretations. An older person might not want to say rape. They might not want to imagine. Some are like, oh no, let's tell that truth or let's modify that truth to to suit what we understand now. Just listening to those stories. You know, it's fascinating and how stories can change people's ideology, how it can absorb their ideology and then be reinterpreted. I know, enthralling. So tell us, what was that pivotal moment that confirmed to you that you wanted to be a writer, academic, an artist too, or more broadly, a creative? You know, because even for you to be enthralled by these family stories is one thing, but then to then pick up the pen is another. And, you know, I have to put that genesis on my family. My father worked at Cheney University for 35 plus years. And our family was a part of Cheney University. He also went to Lincoln University. Um, Leslie Pinckney Hill, who was the president of Cheney, one of his daughters married one of my great uncles. My aunt's husband was an English professor at Westchester University. So they're sort of sister schools. They're right next to each other. The history of Cheney being, a, you know, one of the oldest Black colleges it is. It was the first teacher, Black Teachers College. Being on that campus, I'm haunted, you know, like I, I definitely feel like I'm, I was a haunted child. Haunted in what way? And not in a negative, like scary way, but in a like they knew the stories were coming through me. You know, the stories were I could sit in a space as an empathic child. It's still strong, but those vibrations that I felt as a child were very real, and they would just come through me. You know, and so I was surrounded by books as a child because I had the, that privilege of having family in higher education. They put me in some after-school program where I worked with a graduate student who helped me create my first book. And literally, I wrote the book. She said, well, what do you want to write? I wrote it out. I illustrated it. And then we folded the papers and bound it. And I did a cover and everything. And I still have that. That set it in motion. And then the practice of, I was actually held back um, when I was very young. My mom liked to say it's because you were black and it was a white school and they held you back. Like, okay, mommy. It actually was transitional and beneficial for me because I remember them breaking down language, like sounds of language into stories. Different sounds had a story that went with it. Understanding how language, sound, and story you know, work together and being surrounded by words and books. It was the perfect storm. Same time, you know, my sister is, is not a writer and she doesn't hold on to stories the way that I do at all. In fact, she's like, I don't remember any of our childhood. <laughs> so, and I'm like, I remember at year four, September 2nd, <laughs> the story was what connected me to any and everything. Because stories are cognitively sticky for you, was there a book or a particular story that resonated with you as a child? I read The Bluest Eye in the sixth grade. I stole it off of my dad's shelf and I would take it to school and read it at lunch because I could not feel always connected to other people, my peers. And 
I did not fit into everybody's clique. I was always an outsider, a marginalized sort of individual. And so I remember reading that book and not understanding all of it, but understanding all of it. I knew that that was where I was, that in those pages was where I was, where I lived there too. I don't think I've ever considered any other thing to do besides maybe be a psychologist. I do have some old diaries from when I was a child of me psychoanalyzing other children. I really was just fascinated by human behavior. When I teach fiction writing now, it's a big part of what I do to teach my students to observe. That's the most crucial part of being a writer is being an observer, being a quiet, patient, and still observer of human behavior and, and human activity. And the words were how I found recognition, how I found connection. So there was nothing else that I ever thought to be. The road. How has diabetes played a role in the ways in which you are a writer as well as an academic and creative? My diagnosis as a type 1 diabetic was what drove me to where I am today. I don't know that I would have gotten into academia. I would have never imagined myself to be the chair of an English department ever. But, you know, the expense of insulin and all the fancy gadgets that go with it, even the not so fancy gadgets, it was prohibitive. And when I was diagnosed, I was undiagnosed for many years. And then when I was finally diagnosed in 2007, I was in my 20s, you know, it was such a crazy blow because I never understood that that was something that could happen. My mother is also a type 1 diabetic who was undiagnosed and then misdiagnosed for many years. But we didn't understand what she was going through because she didn't understand it because she was educated when she was diagnosed and neither was I. But being the curious reader researcher that I am, I had to learn how to get curious about it. And so academia became a space in which it was to pay the bills. It was to pay for insulin, not just pay the rent. I could have paid the rent, you know, being an adjunct or doing other things, but having a job in which I controlled my hours a little bit more. I was protected by a union. I had health insurance. It was everything. And in what ways did those supports help you? Because when I was diagnosed, I was writing Willow. I can imagine it was hard to concentrate. It was really hard. I had done so much research and when it came to writing it, it was just so hard for me to concentrate because my body was just failing. And, you know, I couldn't pick it up again until regular insulin, having insurance. So to me, academia really is is mainly about security and protection. You know, I love my students. Well, yes, of course you do. But when it comes to your health and managing diabetes, this is about your survival also. Yeah, that's what got me to Um, academia uh, in a formal capacity was having a disability. We have these passions. We have these pursuits, particularly when you are a creative. You often have to make life choices to say, well, this is my passion and my pursuit, but the realities of security, health security, financial security, all of the above. Sometimes you're engaged in other kinds of work to support the creative side. There's a lot of conscientious decision-making 
around trying to maintain some sort of balance. I appreciate you sharing that story because I think it's important for our listeners to understand as well. You know, I'm not surprised about the way in which you talked about your connection to books. Whenever I've spoken to people who are writers and other kinds of creatives, it's really a a lovely way to look to books and to to be absorbed in them. Mm -hmm. Books can be a form of traveling and escapism, you know, and as an academic, we're often told to tell people what we need to say, but there's a certain skill set that happens when you're showing people. I've been thinking a lot more about, you know, integration and how my family integrate. When my father got the job at Cheney, we moved from Philadelphia to Westchester, Pennsylvania. And my mom was working for Xerox Corporation. We integrated this neighborhood and we integrated this school, my sister and I. My sister has an easier time just interacting with people. I think she doesn't have those vibrations that I was talking about of like feeling everybody else's feelings and trying to, you know, interpret through them. And I think that there's a certain trauma that some of us feel during that integration process that is different from others. You know, like other people have different types of trauma around integration. Mine was very much always having to look over my shoulder, understanding and interpreting, and then trying to understand through these nonverbal cues, you know, understanding that people were perceiving me in certain ways or that, you know, their feelings about me could be one way to my face and very different. You know, I mean, like in things like that, that we all experience as young people, but it becomes so visceral when you are alone in a situation or you see yourself as being alone in a situation. How does this concept of integration fit into ways in which you navigate spaces as a type one diabetic? Working for a university system and having a union behind you, I didn't understand because I still had people telling me that my health was a problem. I still had people, oh, we are going to have a meeting tomorrow. And I would say, okay, well, I have a doctor's appointment. Well, you need to change that doctor's appointment. Not understanding that, you know, for an endocrinologist appointment, you have to make that appointment six months in advance and you have to see them every three months. (laughs) So if you, you know, you're already working in the future for your health and people not understanding how the difference between type one and type two and that it is a disability. The HR people at my school didn't even understand that. I had to still advocate for myself and learn that I was deserving of accommodation. And I went to academia mainly for the pay and for the insurance and had no idea that I that I had rights. And it wasn't necessarily even through the union. I was actually, they tried to fire me. And I was like, oh, wait a minute, no. And let, let me find out. Oh, oh, wait a minute. You know, you all didn't even file my, I requested that you, you know, file me as disabled. You didn't file it because you didn't think that diabetes type one especially was a disability. You dismiss me because you think that, you know, I'm just making a big deal out of it or that I need to lose weight. And that's just my problem. And you wouldn't think something like that would happen amongst people who are educated and are in an educational institution. As a community of color, especially the intellectuals amongst us, the connection of mind and body are often very skewed. You know, we're very focused on our egos and our, you know, our research and our accolades. And I think the connection that one's body has to 
that process of writing and being a writer and a teacher that our bodies are engaged in that space, especially when we're working with students of color. You know, our bodies are so much a part of that experience of learning, how we present ourselves, how we step into a space and how we're perceived by our students. Academia, you know, is no oasis. It is a hard-earned scrabble up a mountain. And some schools are a crevice in that mountain. Some schools are a deep tunnel into that mountain. And and not necessarily because they're Ivy League or, or whatever, but just the culture around them, the people you serve, how society views the people that you serve. All of these things go into the academic life. So Tanya, what what does it mean to be radically imperfect? I started using that phrase when I was writing an article about my teaching style. In my college, no matter what your background is or your experience or training is, everybody teaches composition, academic writing 101. And I was also teaching fiction, writing, and coordinating the creative writing program. And I realized that I was really teaching the same class in many ways, you know, but from different perspectives. And I had to embrace that for a while, I really didn't know what I was doing. Even though they were, I was sort of teaching the same, I I had to integrate the basics into high level creative thinking because my students, they had come from very different backgrounds in terms of their educational experiences. For me, I'm one of those people who is, who I'm like, you don't like to read? How do you not, like, how do how does that, like, it still baffles me when people don't like to read, don't find story as fascinating and compelling as I do. And so I always felt like I was doing it wrong, especially composition, because I didn't have training in it. And I had done work with teen moms, seeing them get their GEDs and things like that. I had to find a way to embrace that imperfection of what I was doing, that I was not going to be perfect person. None of us are perfect. We all know that. Even striving for perfection or even keeping it as a goal is, I have found, it's detrimental to the true process behind education and creativity. Wow, that's really interesting. So how does creativity and education come together for you? To me, creativity and education go hand in hand because I'm a researcher who writes. The idea that my students weren't going to come out of my class suddenly knowing how to write the perfect sentence, much less, you know, have a sound thesis statement. And that I didn't even know necessarily how to teach them from their standpoint, how to come up with a thesis or what even a thesis statement was the purpose of it was. And even though they had gone to high school and, and I had to come to terms with myself that, that it wasn't the goal to get them there, but the goal was to see the academic writing as just a mode of writing. Like in math, you have calculus, you have trigonometry, you have geometry. I'm terrible at math. If you say the word math to me, I get like offended. But when I was younger, geometry was kind of fascinating to me because I had two teachers who really took time to teach me about geometry and and to connect me to it. Now, did that make them, you know, imperfect teachers? Yeah. But, you know, what they taught me was an interest that no one else could have connected, that no one else connected me with. When I realized that radical imperfectionism to move towards being imperfect, to letting the thing be what it is rather than be what we think it should be, to just appreciate their own language, to trust their own writing, to be willing to edit themselves. Like that's a key that 
a lot of people don't think about. And when we apply radical imperfection beyond the text or the classroom, how do we see that come about in our daily language? As I see language changing with every person that we're with, settings that we're with, and code switching, you know, to embrace that, you know, sort of ideology that, you know, we're allowed to speak in any and every way that we we choose. Those are valid ways. Is it perfect? No. And be more interested in the imperfection in it. Be curious about your about the imperfections. Be willing to embrace those imperfections as your life practice. That is what then, you know, connects you to the word. And that makes us human, perfectly imperfect. That is what then gives you some sort of sense of control. Control, what do you mean by that? Because I found so many students who had come to, to me, English was their second language, and they're excelling in chemistry. They're, you know, doing great in biology, but they feel like children when they come into the English class. And me feeling the opposite. And really just sort of being proud of the fact that, no, I'm not. I'm not the perfect, the model. I'm not the standard. More important to be to me to not be the standard, to deviate, being on the margins and that on the outside and accepting that and be bravely standing in that space. It makes me also think about the ways in which you decide to show up in these community spaces, not just as an educator in the classroom or within the ivory tower, but also in the community and creative spaces. In many ways, the intersectionality and the multiplicities of your identities, such as being Black Indigenous person, a person who has an invisible disability, a person who is bisexual. These are all identities are oftentimes on the margins of what is deemed as center, which is Mm -hmm. very white, heterosexist, et cetera, et cetera. So how do you then decide to show up even in this particular climate, the hashtag climate of Me Too, the global Black lives matter movements to me there's there's no resurgence it's just literally status quo. You know? I had a, a conversation not too long ago with older white friend and she was just, oh, I just can't wait until Trump gets voted out. Now the revolution is actually going to happen. People of color understand this. Where people understand this, disabled people understand this. This shit is not for us. It's not for you. Yes, you might have money. You might own a million dollar house, but you don't own a multi-million dollar house. You're now finding out that you're status of what you thought of as upper middle class is really now not even that significant to some of these people. Your rights are just as flimsy as some of ours. They don't care, you know, what your little bank account looks like unless it looks like theirs and you have the same mindset as them. This is how I live my life. I don't have expectations of like miracles, not on this plane. I believe in miracles, but I do not believe that they exist within, you know, the White House built by Black hands. To me, me too, and all of all of these things, these are great. You know, I think it's it's important that we're resurging. You know, the fact that I can now teach Audrey Lord in my classrooms without being considered radical is great. Not too long ago, people were oh, you're teaching Audrey Lord. You're teaching Octavia Butler. That was like, oh my God, 
you know? And to me, that's, those are my people. And those are the people who I look to when I am needing guidance. And how do you see their works carry over into your community activism? You know, working for women against rape. I mean, I have a certificate in women's studies from undergrad and I had a friend who was uh, abused by her boyfriend in college. And I know what it's like for, for a lot of women. I've experienced my own sexualized trauma at work, in the street, wherever. Black Lives Matter. Yeah, I'm Black. My family's Black. Yeah, our lives matter. The book Invisible Man, you know, Ralph Ellison, it could be it could be today. Indeed, because the story is about disenfranchisement and marginalization. The disenfranchised person, the disenfranchised human is the American story. How did these Puritans get here? Not because they were a part of the crew. They were disenfranchised. They were separated. They were told, get out, find someplace else, not just some other part of the country. Get the, get all the way out. We have to remember that that is actually the American story, the struggle, not the success. Are there other movements that allow you to really consider how they inform the ways in which you show up in different spaces? The movement that's actually more interesting to me is on non-binary genders, trans people, asexual people, people who don't adhere to these roles that are so deeply ingrained in our society. That's coming out with a whole other level of under the interpretation of freedom and personal empowerment. I think that's a nice way to pivot to this fact that you founded the program, hashtag every diabetic needs a dog, and are currently working on a memoir. Why tell the story? Why now? In the midst of you founding the program and you working on this memoir, what from these activities can you glean perhaps lessons that you've learned along the way? I had to face my own ableism. Being later in life diagnosed with a disability, I I had to face my own ableism, my ableism against my own mother. I find it very ironic that the goddess would do this to me because she was like, oh, really? You going to think that about your own mama? Let me put that on you. <laughs> Let me put that on you and see how you going to handle it. Okay. Facing my own ableism about illness, this, and, and I always put this in parentheses, ability. When you're diagnosed with something like this, it's, it's incredibly isolating. It's very easy to just shut everything out, to be fearful. And I've met so many people who live that way. And my, and my mom struggles with that a lot. When I was first diagnosed, I felt that was a sentence that I was going to be handed as well. Luckily, now that we have social media, we can find community. We can find alternate ways of being. We can find support. Did you immediately use social media as your community base? Because I wasn't talking about it on social media. In the beginning, it was very much don't tell anybody, don't share it, don't show it because of the disgust that people have around diabetes. The ideology of it, of diabetes being a joke, you know, it's a punch line, you know, more than anything. And the perceptions of that people have of people who have diabetes. Having to reconcile that within myself, that silence, you know, it didn't sit for me in my world of radical imperfectionism. If I can't own this and live it as my truth, then I cannot live at all. Mm, like Orgy Lord says, your silence will not protect you. Once I had dealt with that discrimination at my job where people really just did not get it. And I started recognizing that I had to take this disease, make other people take it as seriously as I took it. And who are these people specifically? Doctors. And that even meant 
Black doctors sometimes. And, you know, claiming my space really happened when I decided to get a, to train a diabetic alert dog. I'm sure that was a huge decision for you to make at that time. There's so much emotion that goes into managing one's health when the body betrays one. I had struggled with, with emotional eating. You know, that then became reflected in my emotional connection with diabetes. And I was, <laughs> I was actually the thinnest and healthiest that I'd ever been in my life, probably when I was diagnosed because I was obsessing. I was like, I only eat baby greens. I only eat baby carrots. I only eat microgreens. Like it was just like this space of trying to control. When I was put on insulin, then all that weight came back. And I found out, oh, it wasn't that I was in control of my body, but I was actually you know, deteriorating and my body was giving me the middle finger. So Tanya, when was that moment where it clicked for you, where you were able to pivot and feel like you can take more control over this disability and how it affects your life? You know, once I started seeing how people connected with their service dogs, and when I found that you could train your own, that was what really drew me in. So tell us, why did you want to train your own service dog? Wanted to train my own dog because I knew that I needed some sort of like, number one, I needed emotional support. As much as he alerts me or doesn't alert me, you know, him being there for me and with me is important. We connect with us. Some of us connect with animals in deep ways and some of us don't. Then sort of doing more research and finding very few people of color with service dogs. Very few people of color who train service dogs. I kind of, once I had decided that, I, and I was, I this was like at the height of being, of battling this discrimination at work. The more I read and the more I researched, saw that a lot of people talked about how having a dog help them with burnout. And the training of the dog helps to refocus you on your own connection with your body. And I wanted to teach him myself because I wanted to be a part of that learning process. But also because getting a dog that is already trained can cost, some people say, oh, it could be only you know $10,000. But that's a lot of money for someone. It can go upwards to $20,000. And so you decided to get your own dog, Bobo, train him him and develop a close relationship with him. You know, when I got Bobo, his actual name is Rambo. <laughs> so the funny thing is, is that Rambo is very much my familiar. And when I was a kid, for my 10th birthday, we got a toy poodle, a little white toy poodle. And we decided back then, because it was the 80s and, and Rambo, the movie had just come out. We thought it would be so funny to name this little dog Rambo. When I was doing the search for this guy that I have now, the breeder had named him Rambo. Oh, and wow. so I didn't even name him that. Oh, it was meant to be. And I, I do believe that our familiars, that we carry our animal spirits with us through, you know, our reincarnations. And so I really truly truly believe that that he came to me. He's so in tune because I got him at 10 weeks old and we started training at 11 weeks. And so I was on this family leave. So I had a year of being paid and insured, but taking that time to recover from, you know, my burnout and to train this dog. The more the dog is connected to you, they're in tune with you. He detect minute changes. I can watch the technical device that I have that measures my 
my glucose and it will go down one point and he's scratching at my leg like your sugar's going down <laughs> like a minute before it tells me that it's going down one point so i realized that i needed a third layer i needed more than just me cognitively monitoring my body i needed more than a device monitoring my body i needed another layer of connection to this and how does bubble tell you what are some of the signals he gives to you telling me by my eyes and his signal is to scratch my my leg or to tap on things. He'll also tap on the floor. I get him to make sounds like, like if I'm lecturing or even sleeping, he needs to be able to make a sound to wake me up as well. How would you say having a diabetic alert dog changed the invisibility of being type one diabetic? It really has changed everything for me and it makes everything, it makes the disease visible. He comes with me in places he's wearing his vest. And I started out wearing only uh, having him wear vests only that said medical alert. And then because of like the stigma around diabetes, I was really definitely in a space of like, you know, not wanting to receive backlash because I had received it. I had received lots of unwanted advice or people saying all kinds of offensive things. But then I finally did use a vest that says diabetic alert dog. And I haven't actually found any changes and it's not like it's that much different. I still get the same bullshit. People are very, you know, you look at his little face and you're like, how could somebody be scared? Or, you know, like there are people who are very afraid who also just don't believe that dog could be service provider or that, or especially for diabetes. And so when I started doing more speaking out about it, it really was through Bobo. I started recognizing that I had to take it outside of, you know, just him and his cuteness and his his work, diabetes events or, you know, health advocacy events. He's out there picking out other people's high and low blood sugar, you know, and people are just amazed. It's fun. And it's a great way that I've been able to get past my own fears of connecting with people, get past my own social anxiety um, because people gravitate to this dog. And I have to, I now have to be like, listen, talk to me first. Do not talk to my dog. Act three, where we land. Having Bobo, having a service animal has really helped your own evolution around accepting and living with this invisible disability. This is, you know, about all of the things that we've been talking about. You know, our appearance is often what determines so much about who we are, how we walk through the world. And, you know, that goes with skin color, as well as gender, as well as ability. All of these things, that appearance is what often creates challenges and privilege. In terms of your ongoing projects, particularly the memoir, how does Bobo and this experience informed your writing in that way? About writing a, a memoir, I don't know if I would have really gotten to that place without having this animal because he did cause me to own something that I was always told that I, that I shouldn't acknowledge or that I should hide or that people are just going to be adverse about it. I always knew I was going to be writing books before I was 30, but at a certain point, I could not see beyond 40. Like I didn't know what else there was in the world for me. This has created an entirely new reality for me. I've always been an activist for others. Now I'm doing it for myself as well as for others. And so Tanya, then what is this story? What is your story now? I'm connecting that the story of 
of the, especially the black type one diabetic is an important part of our, of our American history as we struggle with health care and the cost of medicine. We've gotten to the point of the show where we're at its end, but before we part, I want you to be able to share with the audience, what are you most excited about personally, professionally? Give us a plug on what you're doing, where people could find you. I'd often done, you know, visual arts in some way, shape or form in between writing projects, but I really started embracing painting, drawing, abstract specifically, because I want to reinvent how I play in the world and how I play with my creativity. And I'm actually doing a talk later uh, next month. It's called The Play Imperative. And it's about why it's so important to play in these incredibly stressful times. If we're not playing, we're, we're no longer human. My latest projects are about finding that Black joy, defending that Black joy, using my Black joy as resistance, and being really dedicated to that joy. And I'm actually um, co-editing a magazine, an online magazine called The Tenth, where we're looking at Black queer lives and how our joy is a part of our resistance and our culture. Where can people find you and follow you? Well, we're on Instagram as Bobo the Service Pup, and we're also on Instagram as Diabitchy, where I talk about the intersections of having PMDD and how it is affected by insulin because it's a hormone and, you know, sort of the funny ways of dealing with that as well as activism and, and art. My website is tanyasheriehegeman.com. It was a pleasure. Thank you so much, Tanya Hegeman, for joining us here on Talking Journeys of Belonging to Blackness. Uh, thank you for, for letting me use this as a catalyst. Thank you. There you have it. The journey isn't over, but this episode is. Until next time, peace.